The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. It's my privilege to introduce our morning devotion speaker uh, coming all the way to us from Japan. Uh, Dr. Matthew Newkirk is currently the president and professor of Old Testament at Christ Bible Seminary in Nagoya, Japan, where I've, I've actually visited and lectured as has President Kim. So we're delighted to have you here with us. He's also a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, previously serving as pastor in the United States and as lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament in Australia. His most recent book, Fill the Earth, The Creation Mandate, and The Church is Called Missions, is scheduled to be released in the spring of 2020. If you would like to have more information about uh, Dr. Newkirk, his family, uh, four children, ages 9 to 3, you can read about them on www.newkirksinjapan.com. Dr. Newkirk, please come. Good morning, everyone. Yes, uh, at our, our seminary, we believe deeply in the grace of God, and so whenever I come and visit other seminaries, I love to bring pizza as a, an addition of the Lord's bountiful grace to you. So uh, anyways, I uh, look forward to uh, eating with those who are able to come. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 52. And as you're turning there, as uh, Dr. Kim mentioned, I serve in Japan, and if you are interested in learning about our ministry, uh, I do have some little cards here, info cards about my family and I, and has contact information and our website and information about the seminary, and we would cover your prayers as we uh, go about our ministry there. But now let's turn our attention to God's Word. This is Isaiah 52. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 12, and this is God's holy and inspired Word. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. 
For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Let's pray together. Father, we pray in these few moments that we have together, Lord, that you would encourage us and challenge us by your word. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to conform us more into the likeness of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, when my family and I first moved to Japan, I did what most missionaries do when they first enter a non-English speaking country. I enrolled in language school, in this case, of course, Japanese language school. And in order to assess our abilities, the language school has each incoming student take a placement test in order that we might be set in the proper class. And so first day of school comes around and I follow the signs to the testing room and I sit down with all the other foreign students who are sitting around waiting to take the test. Teacher comes in, teacher passes out the test. I look at this test and I mean, I have absolutely no idea whatsoever what anything on this piece of paper is supposed to mean. I mean, this may as well have been a technical exam for how to change the oil on a spacecraft written in Martian. I mean, I couldn't read a single word, let alone how to answer a single question. What I was able to figure out was that that line up there at the top, that's where I was supposed to put my name. So I wrote my name up there at the top, handed it back in, just like that. Well, unsurprisingly, when the test results came back, I was placed in the the very bottom class, the very beginning class, Japanese 101. This class presumed no knowledge of Japanese, which was obviously a very good thing for me at the time, and it started off with the very basics, with the alphabets. And yes, I did say that in plural, Japanese utilizes three different scripts that you have to memorize in order to read it. And then it moves on from there to pronunciation and simple grammar, so on and so forth. Well, starting at that basic 101 level was absolutely critical for me because without that fundamental foundation, I would not have been able to understand the concepts that were then later taught in Japanese 102, Japanese 103, and so on. In order to understand that teaching that came later, I had to have a firm grasp of the fundamental rudimentary elements of the Japanese language, and that's exactly what Japanese 101 gave me. Well, I've entitled this short little talk, I guess this is a homily perhaps, a sermily, is that a word? I've entitled this talk Gospel 101 for very similar reasons. It's been my experience that in the church, oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, we, talk, we begin by talking about Gospel 102 or Gospel 103. That is, we start with the New Testament and the various uses of the term gospel to describe the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with doing that. The New Testament itself does that. And yet for us to understand fully the implications of this New Testament use of this term gospel, just like I had to do with Japanese, we need to go back to Gospel 101. That is, we need to ask, what are the fundamental, rudimentary elements of the gospel as the scriptures present them? And in order to get at these fundamentals, we need to go back to the original passages and the contexts in which this term gospel first appears in the Bible. And so, Old Testament professors, we love to say things like this. In order to do that, you need to not start with the New Testament, but start with the Old Testament. And this passage that we're looking at here in Isaiah 52 is arguably the most foundational text in this respect. So the term that's translated good news or gospel in verse 7 of this passage, it, it appears prior to this passage in the Bible, but in virtually every situation in which appears... The scenario that is envisioned is the same. It describes the announcement of victory that a messenger brings home concerning the outcome of a decisive battle. 
And I've chosen Isaiah 52 in particular here because this is the passage that the Apostle Paul quotes when he is instructing the church in Rome in Romans 10 to send people out to preach the gospel. He quotes from Isaiah 52, 7. And so for this reason, understanding what's going on here in Isaiah 52 is absolutely critical for us to have a firm grasp of these fundamental, rudimentary elements of the gospel. It's what I call Gospel 101. And so in our brief time here, I'm going to try to have a feat of impossibility and go through four points in the remainder of our short time here together. But Lord willing, we'll get a a bird's eye view of this text and see four fundamental rudimentary elements of the gospel that this text uh, shows to us. And the first is this, according to this oracle, the concern of the gospel is God's name. It's God's name. And we see this right out of the gate in verses 1 to 6. So first off, in verses 1 to 4, These verses are calling those who would uh, be left in the ruins of Jerusalem during the Babylonian exile to get ready because redemption is coming. You see, after Isaiah's time, eventually God would exile his people to Babylon. And yet when he did that, some people were left in the ruins of Jerusalem. The poorest of the poor were left to live in the waste places, as Isaiah calls them in verse 9. And these verses are telling those people to get ready because redemption is coming. God is going to save his people in Babylon and bring them back. And we see the rationale undergirding this act of redemption in verses 5 and 6. So after these commands are given, look at verse 5. God says, Their rulers wail, that is their foreign rulers, and continually all the day my name is despised. You see, people back then thought that if one nation conquered another nation, that that victorious nation's deity was more powerful than the conquered nation's deity. The battle on earth was believed to correspond to a cosmic battle in heaven. And so from the Babylonian perspective, the fact that they were able to conquer Judah and Israel and exile them meant that their god Marduk was more powerful than Israel's god Yahweh. So Yahweh's name is being despised. He's not being recognized as the true sovereign king of the world that he is. Well, how does God respond? Look at verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, that is in the day of redemption, they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. Now, the point here is that even though God's name is currently being despised by the nations, when he comes in power and saves his people, they will know his name. And, of course, name being representative of his identity, his reputation. They will know that Yahweh has not been conquered like the world thinks. God will save his people in order to vindicate his great name. Now, it's been my experience that much of the time when Christians talk about the gospel, we tend to assume that we are the primary concern. We tend to think that the gospel is fundamentally concerned with us and how we are saved. What we often fail to realize, however, is that God's primary concern, his fundamental concern when it comes to redemption, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the gospel, is his name, his glory. His reputation. And therefore the reason that we go out and spread the gospel and share the gospel and preach the gospel to others is first and foremost that God would receive the glory and the recognition that he alone deserves, that his name would be worshipped and honored. 
But what do we tell people? What do we say to them? This is the content of the gospel. This is the second fundamental element here in this passage. So whereas the concern of the gospel is God's name, the content of the gospel is God's reign. Don't worry, they're not all going to rhyme. They just happen to work that way. So we see this in verses 7 to 9. So after verses 1 to 6 instruct the people of Jerusalem to get ready to prepare for God's upcoming salvation, verses 7 to 9 describe a messenger coming and proclaiming that this salvation has been realized. And notice what this messenger communicates. The text begins this way, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings a gospel. And then it describes the content of this gospel in four clauses. It says that this gospel messenger, one, publishes peace, two, brings good news of happiness, three, publishes salvation, and then four, this messenger proclaims to God's people in Zion, your God reigns. Now you'll notice here that this last clause is the only one that actually records the direct speech of the messenger. This is a a literary way of underscoring the centrality of this clause within the messenger's communication. Or if you're familiar with Hebrew accents, the athnach that separates this verse by its logical halves, it appears just before your God reigns. So this is taking up a whole half of this verse. So what is the basic content of the gospel that this messenger proclaims? Your God reigns, and specifically, your God reigns now. Your God has not been conquered like the Babylonians claim. Your God has not lost control of you. Your God has not given up on you. Your God reigns now. That's the good news. Now, again, in my experience, much of the time, we Christians tend to think that the primary purpose of our salvation is so that we don't go to hell when we die. Would you say that's fair? And yet, what we see here from this passage is that the fundamental concern of the gospel is not us, but God's name. And in line with this, the fundamental content of the gospel is not you're not going to hell, but rather your God reigns. And this means that the primary purpose of our salvation is not our avoiding punishment, but rather our incorporation into God's kingdom. Now, of course, a glorious reality of this incorporation is that our sins are forgiven, that we are redeemed and reconciled to God, that we don't go to hell. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a a big fan of not going to hell. But our understanding of the fundamental purpose of our salvation is that which will determine how we live after we are saved. You see, if we think that the purpose of our salvation is simply so that we can get into heaven when we die, then our lives after we are saved are probably not going to change that dramatically from what they were before. After all, salvation is primarily concerned with the next life, not this one. It's unlikely that we will feel much motivation to live in radically sacrificial ways for the sake of God's name now if we don't think that that is the very purpose for which we have been saved. But when we recognize that the purpose of our salvation is to be incorporated into a kingdom over which God reigns right now, then the only logical question for us to ask is what does our king want? What does this king who has graciously rescued us and brought us to himself want us to be doing as citizens of his kingdom? 
Well, Isaiah 52 doesn't spell out explicitly what God wants us to do. We need to rely on other portions of Scripture to fill this out. I'd encourage you to go back and read Romans 10, where Paul quotes and really is explaining and applying this passage. What we see here in Isaiah 52 is a glimpse of the scope of the gospel, of this gospel proclamation. And this is the third fundamental element here in this text. The scope of the gospel, that is, how far and wide does God want the good news to be extend? The scope is the ends of the earth. And we see this in verse 10. Here Isaiah says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now this phrase here, to bear one's arm, is an idiom for showing one's strength or power. And these two lines of poetry here, you notice that they mirror one another in an inverse manner. So the first line ends before the eyes of all the nations, and this corresponds to the beginning of the second line, and all the ends of the earth shall see. This indicates that the outer two lines are also corresponding to one another. So how has God bared his holy arm mentioned at the beginning? Through his salvation mentioned at the end. And so all of this shows us at least two things. One, the way that God the King demonstrates his power is by saving his people. And two, God wants knowledge of this salvation to reach all the nations to the ends of the earth. So what is the scope of the gospel? How far should news of God's reign for the sake of God's name demonstrated by his powerful salvation be extended to the ends of the earth? Now, I'm a missionary, of course, and so it's fairly typical when I come back to the U.S. that I'm going to be sharing updates about missions and preaching sermons that are related to missions, and I'm, of course, delighted to do so. I love to do that. But what I want us to see in this passage is that missions, that is, the proclamation of the good news to all nations, is not an addendum to the gospel. It is not tangential to the gospel. The gospel, the good news that God reigns as king, a reign that is now administered through the righteous rule of the resurrected Jesus, is at its fundamental, rudimentary level, a global announcement. Well, finally, according to this text, the guarantee of the gospel is God himself. This is the fourth element. And we see this in the last two verses, verses 11 to 12. So if you remember, this oracle began with commands for the people who were left in Jerusalem to get ready for God's redemption. And similarly, here at the end, it includes commands for God's people in Babylon to depart, to leave, to be redeemed. This is God bringing about this act of salvation that he has uh, prophesied. Well, verse 12 then gives the reason why God's people can have confidence in this redemption. It says, For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. That is, you don't need to flee in fear in order to escape your captors. Why is that? Here's the remarkable good news, the very last line of verse 12. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. That is, God himself is the guarantee of the security of the redemption of his people. Now you'll notice here that this imagery in this last line of verse 12 is a physical impossibility. So God is on the one hand presented as the trailblazer, the one who goes out in front and ensures the safety of the traveling company. 
And yet simultaneously, he's also described as the rear guard, the one who marches at the very end and ensures the security of those who are traveling. So God here is described as the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the guarantee of the redemption of his people. Now throughout our brief time here, I hope you can see how this act of redemption from this this little micro-exile from Babylon is a picture of the much larger work of redemption that Jesus has brought about for us from our macro-exile from Eden, from the penalty of our sin. And just as God is the guarantee of the redemption of his people from this little exile, so is Jesus the guarantee of our redemption. Jesus has gone out before us on the cross and secured our path. And even now he accompanies us by the outpoured Holy Spirit and ensures that he will never leave us and forsake us as we go forward. And so the guarantee of this good news that we are all called to proclaim, brothers and sisters, is God himself. And thank him that it does not depend on you or me or on our cleverness, our intelligence, our ability, or anything else. This is what gives us boldness as we go out to proclaim this good news, whether it's here in Southern California or to the ends of the earth. So from now on, when you think about this term, gospel, it's my prayer that you'll remember this fundamental teaching from the book of Isaiah, that it's concerned with God's name, the content, and the context of this salvation is God's reign, that the inherent scope of the good news of Jesus is the ends of the earth, that we are part of a global church, and ultimately that Jesus himself guarantees the success of this good news because of his own faithfulness. Thank you so much for having me. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are very privileged here in this room. We are very privileged to have the opportunity to learn in a place like this, to devote time and energy to study and to have resources and teachers who are trained. Lord, we don't take that for granted. Father, I pray for these students who are here, Lord, that you would um, enliven their hearts even in the midst of difficult study and work, Lord, that you would remind them of the grandeur of this gospel that they are studying, preparing to be ministers and servants of. Lord, I pray for the professors and the staff who serve them, Lord, that you give them great clarity and encouragement in their work. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be ambassadors for your great namesake that even in the midst of our finitude and our fragility, Lord, that you would show yourself great as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.